This is the Royal Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 61. Drop the beat. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another installment of the Before the Millions podcast. And on this episode, guys, we're speaking to Mr. Daniel Kleeman. Now, guys, Daniel had the perfect life. He had the perfect career. He was a Wall Street executive, guys. So picture this. You're on Wall Street. You've made it to, quote unquote, the big shots. You're doing everything. Now, guys, by the way, really quick, in the background, you may hear some noise because we're getting some electrical done and I wanted to get this episode out to you guys on time. So um, please excuse the noise. But anyways, we're back in the motion picture and you're on Wall Street. You're doing everything right. You're claiming the ranks. You, quote unquote, haven't made. I mean, you're making $200,000 a year with no end in sight. Most tables have at least two legs. A lot of tables have four legs, six legs, eight legs. So you don't often see a table with one leg. But Daniel, as a Wall Street executive, operated with one leg. And not literally, but in a business sense, in a life sense, in a, in a resource sense. He operated with one leg. He had one stream of income. He was working for an employer that we all thought was super stable. He was working for an employer that's one of the biggest in the world. I mean, there's no way that this star pupil, this star employee could ever be at risk, right? This quote unquote massive Wall Street firm that's been around for decades that you just believe because you work at a stabilized firm that's humongous, you just believe that it's not going to go anywhere or they can't get rid of you. Or that could never happen to you. Or you hear those stories and it's not about you. Daniel's firm disappeared overnight. So he went from $200,000 a year to zero. That was his only leg under that table. He didn't create what we call real stability. A lot of people think entrepreneurs are risky. Real estate investors are risky. I disagree. I think people who don't invest and investment assets are more riskier because they're only operating from one or two legs under that table. Personally, and I know you guys believe this as well, the more streams, the better. Even from a control aspect, when somebody else, a big corporate firm who cares about the bottom line, is in control of your destiny, a lot of fear comes out of that because you never know when it's your day. And it may not even be anything that you've done. In Daniel's case, he didn't do anything wrong. 
the firm itself dissolved, a firm that none of us would have never thought in a million years would go anywhere, dissolved. I think I've whet your appetite enough. Let's find out what Daniel did to turn the tide on the show. DeRay's Tip of the Week. BTM has expanded my knowledge on innovative wealth vehicles, as well as the importance of understanding how to learn from the mistakes of others for a less bumpy road. Keep up the great work. Akeem. This information is inspirational and transformational in the business and life of an entrepreneur. Here's to your success. Karen. These are the two most recent reviews left by fellow listeners of the Before the Millions podcast. And if you feel moved or compelled to write one and do the same, then by all means, go ahead. (laughs) It really, really helps us out in our rankings. It helps us get our podcast out to more people. It helps us become more visible. So if you feel compelled today to show some appreciation for this podcast, then go ahead and leave us a rating or review on the podcasting platform of your choice, whether that's Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, iTunes. Can't think of any more right now, so I'm sorry if I left you out, but please leave us a rating and review. Now let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome Mr. Daniel Clayman to the show. Hey, Daniel, how's it going? Hey, I'm going great. Thank you for having me on. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Daniel grew up in the cold, snowy city of Moscow, Russia. At the age of 12, he immigrated with his family to Richmond, Virginia. After a brief, not-so-successful run on Wall Street, Daniel finally realized that he was utterly unemployable. So he ventured into real estate investing and software development, and he hasn't looked back since. Daniel, let's get into that story. I mean, not many people or not anybody has came on the show with the background from Wall Street. Let's talk about that. Let's start there. Let's go ahead and just jump right in. Sure. Well, we came here as immigrants. So I think like most immigrant families, at least I know of, the, the focus has always been, you know, hey, get get a great education. You know, we when we came here, we we were fairly poor. I mean, my, my parents took them some time to learn the language, to get decent paying jobs. And so when we came here when I was 12, I mean, for most of my childhood, it's not like we were destitute, but we weren't well off, right? So the focus was always like a typical immigrant family, get get a really good education, get into a really good college, as good of a college as you can, and then get as good of a job as you can afterwards, because that is the traditional way in which our society has been taught to make a good life for yourself, right? Work hard in school, land a good job, keep your head down, work really hard. So that's what I did. When I came here, I went to seventh grade. That's where I started in America. I went went to high school, got into University of Virginia, which at that time was a very good school to get into. And University of Virginia had a very good undergraduate business program to which I also had to apply once I was an undergraduate. I got into that undergraduate business program. And then one of the advantages of going there is that there is a really strong on-campus recruiting program, meaning every firm that you'd ever want to be at, especially every Wall Street bank, sends representatives down to campus every year to recruit directly from that school. So you really don't have to seek out good employers. They come to you. So at that time, the thinking was that if you want to make really good money, one of the few options, I mean, I had no interest in being a lawyer. I had no interest in being a doctor. 
I certainly didn't have any musical or athletic talents, right? So <laughs> one of the few other ways you could potentially make a lot of money is go work on Wall Street. At that point in time, as I was going through college, entrepreneurship was never on my mind. I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. I've always done kind of side gigs here and there to make some money, but it was never, it never occurred to me to go into that first, right? Thinking was always get a good job, make good money, learn some stuff, and then maybe one day, you know. So that's what I did. I went, I moved to New York. I got a job at uh, Bank of America Securities, which was Bank of America's, you know, trading arm, essentially, their investment bank, their investment banking arm. And that's, that's where I got my first job. And then I kind of hopped around between a couple of different firms. And, you know, every time I hopped to the next job, they'd offer me more money. And, and so that's what I did for the first six years of my professional life. I, I worked 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, didn't sleep very much, didn't really save any money. And, you know, for, for a 22, 23 year old kid, I, I'm, I made good money, but I didn't save any of it. I wasn't building anything. I wasn't really, you know, I was learning sort of one skill set and that was it. So that's my Wall Street story. I, I you know, the, the problem with what I was doing was I never really was into it that much, but that was the only way I knew that if I just did a decent job and kept my head down, I'd make more and more money every year. I'd get paid more and more money. And then eventually if I just stuck around, I'd make a bigger bonus. And next year, I'd make a bigger bonus. And so I think it's probably typical of a lot of people in that I looked good on paper, but I wasn't fulfilled. Even as I was making decent money, especially for a kid my age, I, I always kind of had that nagging feeling in the back of my mind that, hey, there's more out there that I could be doing. I, I could be building something, like actually building something for myself, contributing better to the world, just having a more interesting life than, than going into the trading floor and, and working my ass off seven days a week, you know? That definitely makes sense. What do you think brought about this feeling of unfulfillment? I mean, this is this was kind of the dream for you. You wanted to work on Wall Street and you wanted to get your bonuses every year and make a whole lot of money and just kind of keep growing from there. Where did the unfulfillment begin and, and why do you think that, that that came about? Well, things that we want, it's like any goal, right? I mean, you, you set a goal for yourself and that's all you can think of. And then you find when you finally reach that goal, maybe it's not what you thought it would be. Or maybe it's satisfactory for a few minutes and then you, you want something else. For me, it was the fact that we were just moving numbers around the board, right? And at the end of the day, I was making other people rich. My bosses were profiting off my work. They were making a lot of money. But even my bosses, I mean, even we as a company, we weren't really creating anything, right? The nature of what we were doing was we were taking a set. I, I worked in bonds, right? So what we did was we took more pools of mortgages, package them together, securitize them as mortgage backs. This might be complete gibberish to people that are listening to this podcast, but I mean, I'll just quickly go through it, right? I worked in mortgage-backed securities. We took a bunch of mortgages, packaged them together into securities. Then we took those securities and we repackaged them as other securities. And then we sold them to insurance companies and banks and, and hedge funds. And so we weren't really, none of my job revolved around creating anything meaningful, right? We were just repackaging stuff and making money off it which is fine. That has a place in the world. That has a place in the, in the sort of economic eco ecosphere. But I wasn't creating anything. I wasn't building anything. I was just coming in, clocking in, doing fairly challenging work in terms of complexity. I mean, I worked on some really interesting deals, but to me, it wasn't fulfilling. At the same time, I worked next to guys that, that freaking loved it. They would have done it for free, right? So I just think it, it, it really depends on your personal tastes. What I found out later in life that is that for me, 
my, my satisfaction comes from, from working with things that I can touch and feel. That's why I end up getting into real estate development. You know, now I see an impact I'm making in the world. If I put up a new building or, or a new house, it's going to be there for the next hundred years. Assuming my contractors did a good job, you know, I can drive by it every day. I can see the impact that's having on the community. I can see the impact on, that it has on, on my tenants who are living there or people that I've sold the house to and see the, the benefit it's having on the overall community as, as more development happens around it. That to me, that's where I get my satisfaction from, right? What I was doing earlier ended up not being a good fit for me. And then at the end of the day, the other aspect of it was that I existed in a, how should I term it? Not necessarily approval-seeking environment, but, but I, I existed in an environment where my fate depended on other people's approval. And that's called a job, right? That's, that's any job. It, it wasn't just my job. Anybody that's listening to this, if you go into work and you work for somebody else, you exist in an approval-seeking environment. Whether you like it or not, your fate and your success and your paycheck depends on approval of other people that hold your fate in their hands. And you may be okay with it. I, you know, a lot of people are okay with it. To, to me, that always kind of pissed me off a little bit. Yeah, I, it, just didn't, it just didn't work for me. I'm much more of a fan of, of sort of, if my life takes a wrong turn or if I lose money, at least I can say that it's my fault right? It's because of risks that I took. It's because of decisions that I took. It's not because I didn't suck up to somebody in the office or I didn't play corporate politics or, you know, I, I didn't contribute enough at, a, at another useless meeting. <laughs> Daniel, you talk about being in, a, in an approval-seeking environment. And I can relate. I know many of the listeners can relate. You know, it's one of those environments in which everybody has the ability to say no but nobody has the ability to say yes, you know? Mm -hmm. So you're constantly getting the hammer down. You're constantly getting those because that's what, I mean, that's the power that people are given. But when it comes to actually being able to do something, actually being able to make a change, make an impact and have a new idea, you have to get about 10, 20, 30 yeses before, you know, you can move the needle. So I can understand the discontentment, the, the unfulfillment. Speaking to the mortgage-backed securities, I just quickly want to ask, what uh, time were you working at Bank of America? Because I'm sure you know what type of thoughts that sparks in my head when, it, when you talk about mortgage-backed securities and putting them together and, you know, oh, yeah. what happened with the whole crash. So I just want to know what, what time era were you, were, you, were you in that arena? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I was there all the way up until the crash. My last job was at Bear Stearns. And I, oh, wow. I worked, worked on the trading floor in New York at Bear Stearns. And, you know, Bear Stearns was a great shop. I worked with a ton of really smart, talented people. But it just, you know, it just, it all came crumbling down in 2008. And yeah, and I was smack dab in the middle of it. And I witnessed firsthand a lot of people that I worked with who, and this was really eye-opening to me. So I was still a pretty young guy, right? Like I was insignificant. But I worked next to a lot of really smart people who devoted their entire lives to that company. And a lot of, if not most of their compensation was in deferred stock. And even after that stock vested, they kept their stock, you know, they kept their bear, most of their comp and bear stern stock because it was a hundred year old company and they could never go out of business. And these people were, they didn't diversify. They put all their eggs in one basket. And not only that, but they didn't diversify their skill set, right? So they worked for 20 years on one type of let's call it a bond, right? Or one type of security or one type, you know, they didn't diversify their skill set. And overnight, their stock got wiped out and, and, and a lot of their skills became obsolete. That was really eye-opening to me. 
right? Because again, here you've got people that, that gave 20, 25, 30 years of their life to a company and it all just vanished overnight. Probably not because of something that they did, right? But because of bigger market forces and bigger decisions at the top of the company. So that was pretty eye-opening to me, just kind of witnessing that. You know, I left there fairly unscathed. I mean, I didn't have any deferred compensation. I actually ended up getting hired into JP Morgan when they acquired Bear Stearns. But then I kind of pushed to get out of there after a few months because it just wasn't fun anymore. So th- that whole experience kind of put a final nail in the coffin in terms of me wanting to, to, to have a job, right? Because I saw, I saw that you can make every right decision. And that was, that was kind of my story, right? I mean, I was on my way at Bear Stearns to having a really good income. I did everything right. I worked hard. I came on the weekends. I got along with my bosses. I was well-liked. You know, everything that I personally could have done, I did right. And I still end up getting shafted because of things completely outside of my control. And I'm not bitter about it. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I'm much happier right now. But it was eye-opening to me, right? Because again, you go into the office, you can make every right move that you could make. And it can still all be taken away from you. So there's a couple of different, I mean, I, I could basically talk shit about having a job many different ways, right? But to me, the biggest things are, A, you really, it's very hard to create something. That was my other big frustration, right? I wasn't really creating something. Now I work for myself. I have the freedom to create. I want to create a new software. I can do it tomorrow. I want to put up a new building. I literally have the power to do that, right? I can think of up a new design or a new project, I can go and I can make that happen. It's very hard when you're employed somewhere. And then two, you you have no control. So not Daniel. to be a negative, Nancy. <laughs> no, no, no. I, th- I, think, I think the listeners need to hear this, Daniel. This is very important. And we haven't talked about this in a while. I think, you know, when we, when we talk about stability on this show and we talk about your, your W-2 job and we talk about you know, market forces, we talk about all the things that could go wrong, all the things that are not in your control. It's a scary, scary thing to imagine. And me and you were just kind of reflecting back on your life. And it's easy to kind of talk about it and reflect on it. But in the moment, you know, that's not a game. You know, this is this is your life. This is your way of taking care of your family, you know, your way of providing. So it, it's a very, very serious matter that, you know, I think that we should all take heed to, you know, we just because we're, we're excellent at what we do, and we're at work and we're grinding it out and, you know, we're climbing the ladder does not mean we have stability. You know, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a W-2 corporate job if, if, you, if you love what you're doing. I'm just saying that you can't control. I mean, there's so many variables that you cannot control, you know, and I know that a lot of people that listen to this podcast, they want that control. They yearn for that control. I yearn for that control. Daniel, you yearn for that control because it's a scary world out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, these companies, you know, you, you think about, you know, Beer Stern and you're like, this company could never, never not be here anymore. No, you it's know? a venerable <laughs> Wall Street institution. I mean, it's been around for 100 years. It's not just going to disappear over now. Oh, wait, yeah, that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's no such thing as job security anymore. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't have a job, but find, find ways to diversify your income. And that doesn't mean save your money, right? That's not the answer but you need to find ways to diversify your income, create other revenue streams so that if the job doesn't work out, you're not left completely holding the bag. For sure. It's it's incredibly important. For sure. 
you know, and it's crazy because we're, we're only speaking to the aspect of, of job security from the standpoint that the, the company is still going to be around. But, you know, we're talking about a situation in which you were a great employee. You were doing all, all everything right. Imagine an average employee. Imagine somebody who's not doing stuff right. You know, you have even more variables to consider because it's not only if, if the company goes out of business, is if they lay you off, is if you're one of the people who don't make the cut. You know, there are so many things that goes on that you have to definitely want this stability when it comes to creating other streams of income, creating cash flow. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's what it's about. So you talk about some of the some of your coworkers and how they didn't diversify you know and diversity is is a very 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 sensitive subject because i mean you have some people who say that you shouldn't diversify you you should you should niche down as much as possible and you have some people that say you should diversify but in this situation i think it's very clear to see the outcome of not diversifying you know you talk about all of the employees that had all of their their stock compensation tied up with Bear Stern and their skill set was tied up. Their skill set was was that of a skill set that's not transferable. So you're pigeonholing not only your cash flow, your income, your stability, but also your skills to where you you don't have a, a backup plan as far as you know what you can do if if this company goes out of business. So I think that's very very important distinction when it comes to diversifying, when it comes to stability. You know, many people operate as if you know they're, they're sitting at a table that only has one leg. There's mm-hmm. no way that that table is going to be able to stand up. And if it can, let's say that one leg gets chopped off, what happens then? You know, we're trying to create 26, 38, 54 legs on that table. So no matter what happens to 10, 20, 30 legs, that table is solid. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I think that people need to remember that, again, diversification doesn't just apply to money, right? You need to diversify your skill sets. You, yeah. just, just because you're doing something at your job, that, that shouldn't be the only thing that you're content with learning or knowing. Go take a class in the, in the evenings. Crap. I mean, there's online classes you can take on just about every subject. The real estate investing interests you. There's incredible amounts of information out there. Any subject, you know, learn sales, learn marketing. Those are incredibly transferable skills between almost every single industry. If you can learn how to market and how to sell, even if your current job doesn't require it, those are skills that you can take anywhere, whether you launch your own business or whether you go to another job. I mean, that's just as an example. Yeah, for sure. I love that. That's that's super valuable, Daniel. And, you know, let, let's get micro for a minute. Let's talk about the exact day, the exact day that Beer Stern let you go. You know, what were you feeling? What, what were the emotions inside of you? And then let, let's maybe progress to talk about what you decided to do, you know, as far as creating multiple legs and, and start, you know, creating cash flow for yourself. I want to talk about your first investment, but let's, let's first get to that day, that very day that that happened. And what were your emotions? How were you feeling? And, and what was next? So I, I actually remember the day. It was, it was August 14th, 2008. And the truth is, it's not that I knew that the day was coming, but I sort of, I had an idea. Right, because basically after we got rolled into the bigger company that, that acquired Bear Stearns, which was JP Morgan, I at that point sort of decided that I didn't want to be there anymore. And then all of my friends kind of know the story because it's, it's pretty funny. But at, at that point, I decided to, that I needed to get laid off. <laughs> right? so, but I didn't want to get fired. So, so it's, it's sort of a fine, it's kind of a fine art to walk the line between doing just enough to not get fired and not enough to get kept. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So, 
So like you have to be well liked, otherwise they'll just fire you. And you can't completely, you can't actually mess something up because then they'll fire you. But you have to do just the bare minimum to where they kind of figure out that your heart's really not in anymore. So that's what I did for a couple of months. I started showing up a little bit late, taking longer lunches. At that point, I already owned a couple of rental properties back in my home state of Virginia. And I was looking at some other ones because the market was already crashing. And I was like, man, there are deals out there. So my, my boss saw me like talking to real estate brokers on the trading floor during work hours and stuff. And, and you ever watch Office Space where a guy like shows up to his office and starts scaling a fish on his desk and, <laughs> yeah. and he's just, does, just doesn't give a crap about his job anymore? Like that was kind of, that was kind of like, that was kind of me, right? I mean, I didn't, I decided at that point that, that I, I just was not going to have a career in that company anymore. And so when the day finally came, it, it was sobering, right? Because I mean, that, it, it hits you, it hit, the reality hits you. You're, you're getting laid off. Starting tomorrow, you don't have a job. And so even though I was kind of pushing for it and hoping for it, it's still scary, right? You walk out of, the, of, of your boss's office after they've told you that, that you're being let go. And part of me was excited because I, that's kind of what I was hoping for. But the other part of me was really scared because I had absolutely no idea what the next steps were going to be. I had absolutely no clue what my next week, month, year was going to look like. And I had a decision to make. So I, I remember I left the, the office building that afternoon after I got done with my meeting with my, with my bosses. And I walked home. I had an apartment in the Upper East Side of New York. And it was like 45 blocks away. But I decided to walk that day because I needed to clear my head and think. And so I had a decision to make. Do I send out resumes? Do I send out resumes to look for another job? And the fact is, it's not like I was some kind of a superstar or a rock star, but I had a good resume. I had a good reputation. I could have landed at another Wall Street firm and continued my career on Wall Street. And I could have landed a decent paycheck. And I probably could have, could have rebounded, you know, would have taken me a couple of weeks or a month or two months to find a job, but I could have. So I needed to decide whether I was going to do that. And on my walk home, I said to myself, I asked myself a really important question. Is there any job, any job, let's say I get a call tomorrow that, that taps me to be CEO of a Wall Street firm, which is a joke, right? It would never would have happened. But that's the question I ask myself. If I got tapped to be a CEO with a seven-figure package tomorrow, would I wake up for the next three months excited to go to work every morning? And the answer was no. There was not a single job that I could think of that I could have landed, even beyond my reach, right? Beyond my wildest dreams. There was not a single job that I could have landed that I would have been excited to go into. And at that point, it became clear that I'm not sending out a single resume. And I don't know what my next, what my future is going to hold, but sure as hell not going to hold working for somebody else, which in and of itself is a really scary decision because I didn't have much savings. I, I had an expensive apartment that I had to break my lease on. So you know what I did? I packed up my shit and I was 28 years old and I moved back to Virginia into my parents' spare bedroom. That's what I did. Which took some pride swallowing because here I was, high-flying career on Wall Street, making you know quarter of a million dollars a year at 27 years old, and all of a sudden I'm living in my parents' spare bedroom. But guess what? It was the best thing I could have ever done because I, I erased all of my living costs and I got to the point where I had the freedom to build, right? Sometimes to rebuild, you have to, you have to break something first. So that's what I did. 
Daniel, that's definitely uh, inspirational. And our, our, our stories are very, very similar. And you, you got home and you had already started investing. So it wasn't much at the time, but there was a bit of a safety net. But it was enough for you to know that if you kind of kept going down the path that you were going, that everything was going to be okay. In fact, everything was going to be better than how it previously was because you didn't, you no longer had to answer to anybody. You no longer had, nobody else no longer had 80% of your time during the day. You were, you were fully dedicated and focused to yourself and your business. And that in itself is an amazing feeling. It's almost like a revitalizing feeling. It gives you, I mean, you know, you're going to have those, as an entrepreneur, you have those ups, you have those downs, especially as a starting out, you know, when you started out, you're going to have those days to which you're like, man, I don't know if I can do this, but you also have those days to but you're like, the, sky, the sky's the limit. So what was next for you? What did you start doing? What business did you start? Did you start, did you continue investing? How did, how did the next chapter of your life unfold? So it's funny, at, at that time, I was reading two books. And I know you'll probably ask me about my favorite books later, but I, at that time, I was reading two books that resonated with me. One was Atlas Shrugged. I actually read Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged in, in succession, all at that same time. And then I read, and that book had just come out, but it was The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. And, and the timing of it was incredible because literally as I was trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life, I was reading Tim Ferriss's book. And one of the things that resonated with me was he said, starting a business is scary, but at the same time, what do you have to lose? If you start a business and you just completely fail, <laughs> what's your worst case scenario? Your worst case scenario is then you will have to go and apply for a job. Right. And when you apply for a job, you may have a, a year or a two gap on your resume. You're going to sit there in, in the interviews office and they're going to say, well, what did you do for the last two years? And what's your worst case scenario? You're going to sit there and you can tell them, I started my own business. I learned this skill and 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 this skill. And I learned this and this and this and this is what they did. And it didn't work out. Do you think they won't hire you? <laughs> And that really helped me, right? Because that, that kind of made my path clear. I said, well, what's the absolute worst case scenario? What, what does my life look like in a couple of years if I fail? Well, I get another job and I probably get a higher paying job because of all this stuff I just learned through building my own business. So to answer your question, when I moved home, I had a couple of rental properties that I owned with, with my partners. They weren't anywhere near enough to cash flow to, you know, we weren't even taking that cash flow out of the properties. We bought these properties at the top of the market and the cash flow that was coming off of them was just enough to kind of pay for maintenance and capital improvements on those properties. So it wasn't an income source. But I realized at the time, you know, 2008, 2009, that there were amazing deals to be had. Market crashed you could find amazing deals everywhere you look. So when I moved home, the next thing I did was I literally found a $40,000 shell, just a shell of a house. And I bought it with the same two partners that I owned a couple of other rental properties with. And with one of my partners, I spent the next six months literally renovating that house. That house and one other one that we bought that we picked up for like 17 grand. And we spent six months literally doing everything we could ourselves in that house. Now, of course, HVAC and electrical was done by contractors, right? And plumbing was done by contractors. But I basically went from wearing a three-piece suit working on Wall Street to swinging the hammer for 16 hours a day. And it was the best thing I've ever done. I mean, I can't tell you how much better I felt coming home every night after having just done like actual physical work all day. <laughs> <laughs>
But the added benefit of that was that I learned almost every aspect of renovating firsthand. Now, it doesn't mean I, I, I walked out of there being some kind of a pro or classic contractor, but my learning curve was shortcut by years from having literally witnessed every aspect of, of a gut renovation on the house. So I did that. We renovated these houses. We leased them out and we bought these houses with some cash that we had, we had in our savings. We leased these houses out to tenants and then we went to a local community bank and we refinanced them. We got our money out and now, now we had money to go and to put them to the next house and the next house and the next house. And the other valuable lesson I learned was that after having swung the hammer for six months, I was never, ever going to do it again because in the same six months that I did those two deals, I missed out on 20 other ones. So the other important lesson I learned was that you need to delegate and you need to outsource and you need to have people who specialize in stuff do what they specialize in. So I was glad that I had that experience for six months, but I was literally never going to pick up a hammer ever again. I mean, even now, if I walk by my properties and I see like a decking nail that's sticking out and I have a hammer in my hand, I still won't walk over there and do it because it's not a good use of my time. I'll call my contractor, right? So there's, a, there's kind of a flip side to everything. I think you should, do, you should do some things yourself to get the experience, but they need to stop because your time is worth more. Definitely, definitely. And kind of speaking to that, you know, a good way to look at it, because people often have trouble figuring out what they should do and what they should delegate. You know, so if, if you believe that your time is worth, a, you know, let's just say $100 an hour, whatever it is, if your time is worth $100 an hour and you're looking to do a job that's worth $10 an hour, well, that's a difference of $90 an hour. You can pay somebody $10 an hour to do that job. Even if you're a brand new entrepreneur and you think you don't have the money, you'll be, trust me, you'll be saving a lot more money in the, in the long run. So even if you pay somebody to do that job, nine times out of 10, you're paying somebody who's specifically skilled to do that job. And nine times out of 10, they're going to do it better than you. So not only are mm -hmm. they doing it cheaper right than you, but they're doing it better than you. And now you're able to go off and, you know, use that same exact time to do $100 per hour jobs. And I think that's the best way for the listeners to kind of look at it, like just measure it against what you think your time is worth. And if it's less than that, then outsource that, you know? So, but I think it's, I, I definitely think it's very valuable to, uh, especially in the early stages to kind of, you know, wear all hats, kind of how you did. So you know exactly what to look for in an employee and you know exactly how much, you know, the, the job is worth and how much it costs and things like that. So that, that's great value. And then once you, once you kind of know the skill set that you're looking to hire for, then you can kind of start outsourcing that. So I think that's, that, that's super valuable. And you talk about the four hour work week, and that's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite books, Daniel. And I use that same, that same analogy, that same quote that you mentioned. And I think I talked about it a few episodes ago, but it's like, when it comes to taking risks, you know, what's the absolute worst thing that could happen in your life? What's the absolute, you know, when it, when it comes to, to, to going out and being entrepreneurial and if you're leaving your job or if you got fired from your job, whatever the case may be, what's the, like, you know, instead of returning to that, you know, let's just say you do start a business and you, you gave a, a great example, you know, what's the absolute worst thing? And nine times out of 10, when you think about the worst thing that could happen, it's like, you're not really taking any risks. You can always go back and get your job nine times out of 10. You can go and get a similar job nine times out of ten. You can go get a better job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, and I think that people don't ever think about the other side of that coin. It's always just, oh no, I need the stability. There's a lot of fear there. But think about the other side of that coin. What's the worst that could happen? Really? Well, 
then sorry to interrupt you, but I would say the, the other part of that conversation is also where are you at in your life, right? It was very easy for me to have that conversation with myself because I was 28 years old. I had no responsibilities, no family, no kids. It's a harder conversation to have when you have no savings and you've got a family that depends on you. Then it's a little bit more of a nuanced conversation, right? You can't just kill your only income sources and move in with your parents when you've got two kids and your spouse depending <laughs> on you, right? Oh, actually, I, you could. You could. You know, your, your spouse might be pissed off at you, but you know, if 10 years later you, found, you find yourself doing much, much better than you could have ever at your job, then in hindsight, you'll look like a genius. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it becomes a harder conversation when you have a family, and that's where you need to start looking at, well, instead of just cutting the cord, how do I create other sources of income that I can slowly build up to replace my income that, that my job generates? And that's why, I mean, that's why obviously, you know, you talk about real estate in your podcast and it's a great way to do it. And for most people, it doesn't take that many units to substitute whatever income you're making in your job. It doesn't take many at all. I mean, for most people, it's 15 to 20 units and you've just replaced your income. That's not a lot. You're so right. And they need to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I, for most people, there is a way in which you can, you can acquire that size of a portfolio in, in a few years at the most. You know, if, if every unit cash flow is $500, you know, 20 units, and you're, you're getting 10 grand a month. For most people, that eclipses their income from their job. Unless you're in like a good corporate salary. So Dan, I kind of want to get into that some, but let's let's maybe fast forward and, and catch up to, to present day in your life. And let's let's kind of get a, a 30,000 foot view as to what all your hands are, are currently in right now, because I know you have a few businesses. You have your real estate business. You have your online company in which I won't I won't spoil it. I'll kind of let you uh, take it away with that and tell us what, what that company is about. But what are you all involved in today? So on the real estate side, we've got a real estate development business that builds so we do a couple of things we rehab properties uh we build ground up most of what i'm doing now is ground up construction so as we speak i'm building three duplexes getting ready to break down on a six unit and then we're we're working on permitting i mean i have another probably 150 plus units in the pipeline just in terms of the land that i already own and designs that we're currently working on for that land for, for those properties uh, in various stages of you know, design or, or already going through permitting. I have a property management company, an in-house property management company, and we manage just, just my own portfolio. And so that's about 100 units right now. And I've sold a bunch of stuff lately that has underperformed. And, you know, my, my goal has always been, I hear of a lot of people just talk about units, 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 number of units, competing on number of units. And for me, my philosophy has always been different. I, I want my life to be I'm not going to say easy because I still work a lot, but I want my life to be fairly simple. So I've never really focused on accumulating just as many units as I can. My focus has been on having high quality product with no maintenance and high quality tenants that always pay their rent and we never hear from them, right? So I've been very strategic about where my portfolio is located, what kind of units we have, how we manage them. And I'd rather have fewer units, but have them cash flow well and have them keep my management company from exploding, right? So we have we have a very we have very high quality for the most part product. We collect 100% of our rent by by the seventh of the month usually, 
there's one or two stragglers occasionally. But we have a very easy to manage portfolio. And, and I'm strategically growing that portfolio right now, primarily through new construction. Because when I do new construction, I can build, I can design the product the way I want. I can lay it out the way I want. I can build it correctly so that it is energy efficient and it's maintenance free for the next three, four, five years before I ever get any kind of calls from my tenants. So that's my strategy in the real estate side right now. I mean, primarily what I'm doing is, is ground up development. And part of my development business is building houses ground up that we sell to retail tenants. But I'm scaling that back a little bit right now because I really don't know if the retail market is, is going to be as strong six months from now, given what interest rates are doing. So I'm refocusing back on just building solid, high quality rental product. Gotcha. And are these products in the single family space? The, the retail stuff that I've been building and selling is single family. What I'm building on, on the rental side is anything for two units and up. So two, gotcha. four, six, 12, all the way up to, you know, again, I, I have in initial stages of developing a project that's going to be about 120 units. Okay. So give us a high level overview of how a development works from, from A to Z. And we'll, we'll maybe use, use an example of a, of a duplex that you've, that you've done and kind of the numbers on it, what you need to put in, how long it takes and kind of the returns that you would typically see in your market. Sure. So the duplexes have been kind of my bread and butter that I've been building for the last couple of years. And, and we sort of have almost the, the same layout now that we built and I'm building three of those right now. And, and they're pretty easy from a construction standpoint because you still build them by residential code. But what I've been doing is I've been buying the land. This is all infill development. So this is all in downtown Richmond. Uh, these are infill lots. I've been buying the lots with cash and I'm able to take that land bring it to one of my local community banks and I use that land as equity. And typically they've been financing hundred percent of my construction. So let's say I buy a lot for $30,000. I'll take it to a bank. I'll use it as equity and they'll give me a $200,000 construction loan to build a duplex. That duplex is typically going to have each apartment is going to be two bedrooms, two baths. When all is said and done and I've built that duplex, Given those numbers, I'm into it for around 235 to 240. It will appraise around 330 to 350. So I have really solid equity going in. And these units will typically rent around 13 to $1,400. So what happens is I leave. Now I can, I can refi it and I can pull my original cash that I've spent on the land back out. But lately, I haven't really refied. I've preferred to keep some money in the deal because it increases my cash flow. And I don't mind keeping that money in the deal because I have now a property that I own at a very low loan to value. Right? I mean, if you take three, let's just do the rough math. Is this a podcast where people do math? Let's do <laughs> Definitely. 240 divided by 350. I'm into, so my total cost basis in that, in that duplex is under 70%. My loan is only 200 grand. So on my balance sheet, I only owe 57% of that deal. So it, it just makes it easier for me to get more and more financing because my balance sheet looks great. And the numbers that I look at is if I'm leaving cash tied up in the deal, what, what is my cash on cash return? Well, my cash on cash return typically is in the high teens, anywhere between 15 to like 20, 22%. But that's just cash on cash return. Then what happens is most of these notes are 20-year amortization notes. So on a 20-year amortization note, 
at like a four and a half, five percent interest rate in the first five years, my tenants are paying down around 16% of that mortgage wow. in the first five years, right? So you, you have to add that to your return. And then of course you have depreciation. So these are bread and butter deals, right? New, new construction is, is not going to make you filthy rich in the first couple of years. These are long-term plays. These are plays where I add a couple of hundred dollars in cash flow clean to my income. And I add six figures of equity to my balance sheet and to my net worth. And the real payoff comes five, 10 years down the road where my tenants have paid off 40% of my mortgage. Now I can refi and now my cash flow is really big, right? And I've grown my rents by that point even more. And this is long-term wealth creation. This isn't the stuff that you'll see on late night infomercials where it's going to teach you how to sail on yachts in, in the next two years and be a gazillionaire, right? This is, this is bread and butter wealth building. I love it, Daniel. I love it so much. This is, you have a, a wonderful model and I haven't heard of your model on this podcast yet. So I'm glad you're able to shed light to that because that, that's amazing. I mean, what's the, from the time that you find the lion to buy to the time that you get a tenant in your duplex, what's the, how much time has passed? Best case scenario is six months. I mean, I, I can typically build these duplexes from when we break ground, I can build them in four months. Usually it now takes longer, right? So best case scenario is six months. If you buy the land, immediately go to permitting. Your permitting department actually works quickly, unlike where I live. Um, they approve you. You can have a tenant in there in six months. In real life, it, it usually takes longer, right? So I mean, it you know, can take you a couple of months to get the design from your draftsman, couple of months to get permanent. So, so maybe you're looking at a year versus six months. So it takes time. Okay. Okay. And then if you're doing commercial, then it takes longer. I mean, commercial construction takes longer. Commercial permitting takes longer. I've got a six unit building that we've been getting, we've been going back and forth with the permitting department. And I, I swear it's been like four months. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite before the millions book? So I've mentioned two that were impactful on me. It was Atlas Shrugged and Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. You know, the, the other book that has been instrumental, and I almost feel like a cliche now saying this because I think it applies to so many people, but it was it was Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I mean, that's the book that I was reading while I was slaving away on Wall Street. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> it's completely eye-opening. Like I don't need the, the wealthy people don't become wealthy by working for somebody else. They don't. Nobody has become wealthy off of their salary, right? To become wealthy, you need to acquire and build assets. And it was an incredibly eye-opening book for me. So, I mean, if I had to name books, I would probably name those three, right? Which everybody's heard of them. I'm not telling you anything mind-blowing here, but I mean, it's those have been incredibly impactful in my life. Love it. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Oh man, see now you're asking me a hard question. I have no apps on my phone. I don't even have email or Facebook on my phone. <laughs> so maybe, actually Uber, I've got Uber on my phone. There we go, there we go. Love it, yeah, but there that's, <laughs> I'm not, not, not really an app guy. <laughs> I got it, well Uber is a perfect answer, so I love it. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? The one thing that I've, been very careful to remind myself of ever since I got booted from my job and have been sort of on my own is that every day I wake up, I get to choose what I do with every single minute of my time. 
And I've been very careful not to lose sight of that. Every single day I wake up and I dictate exactly how my day will go and what I will do. And so I used to say to myself very early on that I, I have every day I wake up and I have this freedom of time. I mean, I, I just, I have all of these hours that are mine. I got them back. They're mine. I reclaim them. Now, that doesn't mean I slack off. Like I work harder than most people. I treat all of my companies and I run three right now. I treat them like a job. I, I show up to the office every morning, 6.30, 7 a.m. And, and I work, but it's, it's my choice, right? And I get to decide what I do throughout that day. So that to me is invaluable. That's my favorite part is that I have the control. Nobody else does. I love that. I love that so much. Next question. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Well, so I, I mentioned that to a degree, but I'm, I moved in with my parents. I had no income. I think a lot of people probably aren't willing to make that sacrifice, right? I mean, everybody wants to be like a baller and make a million dollars tomorrow. And many people aren't willing to, to almost make any sacrifices for it. I realized very quickly that, you know, I, there's a saying that I like, and I don't know who said it, but it's one of my favorite quotes. Entrepreneurship is living your life Today, like, 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 like few people are willing to so that you can live the rest of my life like few people can, yeah. right? So to me, I was happy making that sacrifice. I mean, I, I moved in with my parents. I, I kind of swallowed my pride. I mean, I, you know, it wasn't like something that people looked fondly on, right? They were like, dude, you know, you're a loser. Nobody called me a loser, but like, I'm sure people probably said that behind my back, like here was a guy that had a really good job and now he's living with mommy and daddy and you know, but man, I tell you it was great. Mom did my laundry. I had the best home cooked meals every single day. I had no bills to pay and I had no money, but I had the time freedom to create a new life, right? I had the time freedom to create a new business. I had the time freedom to create. And I think that word is really important, right? The real money in this world goes to creators. Like, look around. Everything you're consuming all day long, everything you're buying, everything you're consuming in terms of media, content, it was all built by creators, right? That's where the money is. Go create something, whatever that is, right? That, that's, those are the people that get paid. But you need, you need time, you need space to create. This is the gold, guys. This is, this is literally the gold. Next question. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Again, I, I'd probably have to credit my parents. You know, they sort of, they didn't give me any shit for not continuing my career. They, they were very, they were very supportive of generally whatever I've been doing, right? And I think it's important because, I mean, I was lucky. I mean, there are probably people listening to your podcast right now. They're like, well, good for you, dude. But, you know, I don't have a family that I can fall back on. And, and yeah, like I was lucky. I had a supportive family that, that my mom would let me live with her forever. You know, don't leave. <laughs> come, come live with me. <laughs> like, like she, was, she was thrilled, right? My, my dad bitched about it a little bit, but like at the end of the day, I, I, I had a family that was supportive and that gave me sort of a backstop, right? That allowed me to make the sacrifices that I needed to make in order to kind of rebuild my life and my career. I love that. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck for the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? Complacency, fear. I'm actually getting ready to write an email to my list about this tomorrow. We So the other thing that we haven't talked about is, is I built alongside my real estate business, I built a software business that does seven figures in revenue every single year. And we have over a hundred thousand email subscribers and we create educational products. And But you know, I'm actually getting ready to write an email to them about this tomorrow 
about the fact that, you know, like I built a software company almost by accident, having absolutely no knowledge of coding, no knowledge of how the internet works. I'm not sure I still know, <laughs> right? I did it. I jumped into an industry that I didn't know anything about it. Whereas common sense would have told you that, no, like you can't do it. You shouldn't do it. It's risky. You know, maybe I didn't know better at the time, right? But I think most people are complacent. They're fearful. Sometimes they're just comfortable. It's, you know, especially if you have a job that pays well, it's scary to leave that job. It's scary to go into something that you're not an expert in. It's scary to try something new that, that you don't have any sort of domain knowledge over. But sometimes that's what you have to do. Now, it doesn't always work out. I mean, <laughs> but at the end of the day, like you got to decide what you want your life to look like. So, Daniel, this, you nailed it. You, you killed. This is definitely, you know, where I wanted to take the space to. And I, I, I love that you, you, you were even able to step out and do something like that. I, I really wish we can, we can, we could dive into that more and dive into more of your development. I mean, your, your content has been so awesome. So thank you so much for the value that you've been able to provide to the listeners. And I think we have to get you back because again, there's so much more that we could have, should have, and definitely need to cover. So we'll definitely have to get you back for part two. Daniel, if, if the listeners want to reach out to you, learn a little bit more about you, where can the listeners go to find some of your information and how can they get a hold of you? You can just email me at uh, D-A-N-I-I-L at rehabvaluator.com. And I answer every email that I get, or you can find me on Facebook easy to find so you can reach me in any one of those ways listeners if you want you can visit the show notes and all of daniel's uh links and information will be there uh, if you want to connect with daniel i'm going to add him into our our brand new passive cash flow facebook group so definitely join that group and if you want to be a part of that group visit before the millions.com slash group uh, you can interact with daniel there you can send him a friend request ask him a few questions whatever you want guys so again daniel thank you so much for your time this has been amazing and we'll talk to you soon my pleasure thanks Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit to work with the Before the Millions team, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. That's beforethemillions.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and we'll get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what is your cash flow goal? How much are you looking to make every month? Number two, your personalized investing strategy. And number three, the best way to get started using cash flowing rental real estate. Remember, starting and scaling your real estate investments and business doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We've helped clients all over the world start and scale their investing efforts to six figures and beyond while enjoying life and making the world a better place. To find out if we can help you do the same, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. I'm Dorel Lallier, and let's talk soon.